You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And today I'm joined by a very special guest. Uh, joining me today is Ali Wine. How are you doing today, Ali? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really glad to have you on the show. Um, before we jump into our discussion today, which is uh, for listeners, it's going to be a little bit about big ideas and about the general nature of competition today between the United States and China. I know that most episodes of our Asia Geopolitics podcast focus on newsy events, but this time I thought we'd have Ali on to talk about some of the bigger questions uh, inherent in our competition. But Ali, before we get into our conversation, I wanted to ask you to just uh, tell, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're working on these days. Sure. So again, thanks very much for having me on. It's really an honor and a privilege. And I, I should say, just to embarrass you a little bit, I'm a, I'm a longtime devotee of your work and, and an admirer of your scholarship. So it's really a privilege to to be on the podcast. I'm a policy analyst of the Rand Corporation. Uh, I've been here now for a little over two years and focus on a few different areas, but I would say primarily uh, thinking about great power competition and thinking about how we, how do we, what does the term mean? How do we unpack it analytically? And as I've as I've said in in some uh, some articles and some uh, some episodes or some podcasts lately, I think that there is this marked and growing gap between the prescriptive momentum that great power competition has achieved in Washington and the analytical interrogation that it's undergone. So one bucket is is great power competition, and then I guess under the auspices of great power competition, I'm thinking a lot more about U.S.-China relations and thinking about what are potential steady states. Right now, obviously, the, uh, it, it seems that there's no, uh, no bottom to the, the deterioration of the U.S.-China relationship. But trying to think about what are some potential soft landings for the relationship, what are some of the implications, security implications for the relationship of economic and technological unwinding between the two countries. So I would say great power competition broadly and then under that that broad framework, thinking about alternative features to the U.S.-China relationship. Yeah, you used a very interesting term, a steady state. Uh, that sort of, to me, evokes the idea of an equilibrium through which the United States and China might coexist, sort of contrary to the idea that we sometimes hear of the two countries being in a new Cold War. Of course, as we know, the Cold War had a rather decisive end, uh, resulted in the victory of one side over the other. So when you uh, when you refer to the idea of uh, your work focusing on seeking out steady states, is that sort of your prescriptive insight for the United States and China that they should try to find terms on which they can both coexist through the 21st century? I think they have to because the I mean, you mentioned the 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 analogy that's that's often invoked or the analogy that's used to describe U.S.-China tensions today as as being akin to a new Cold War, and there are a number of differences between between uh, the Cold War and between contemporary U.S.-China competition, and I, I would be more than happy to to discuss some of those. But I think that a core a core difference is that when we look at the when we look at the Cold War, and in retrospect, of course, it's it's uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and we sometimes construct these these uh, or sort of bow tie these neat. Uh, uh, retrospective narratives, and of, and of course, we didn't immediately, we meaning the United States, we didn't immediately converge upon containment. We didn't immediately decide that that uh, coexistence between the United States, long-term coexistence between the United States and the Soviet Union, would be unlikely. But in relatively short order, uh, we did make that decision. And if you look at the contrast, so with the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, when, I mean, if you look at Kennan's long telegram, and if you look at the essay that he penned in Foreign Affairs, he makes it quite clear that whether 
whether through uh, the Soviet Union's internal contradictions or through external pressure or some combination thereof, that containment envisioned a mellowing out and or eventually a dissolution of Soviet power. And it's a pretty clear, a, a pretty clear terminal point, the, the dissolution or mellowing out of Soviet power. And so, and on that point, uh, perhaps the preeminent historian of the the Cold War, John Lewis Gaddis, he um, he gave a speech. I believe it was in early 2001. I think in January 2001, in which he was asked to. I think he gave the speech at the Hoover Institution, and he was asked to reflect on his seminal 1982 book, Strategies of Containment. And the Hoover Institution asked him to reflect on how well uh, how well the messages of the book had held up, how he would write it differently, and and what what themes of the book he would. Uh, emphasize more if he were rewriting it in 2001. And one of one of the observations he made that really jumped out at me and, and that I think is germane to our conversation is he said that although Republican administrations and Democratic administrations varied considerably in how they implemented containment, uh, implicit in the notion of containment was that it was it was tethered to an end state, uh, namely the dissolution of Soviet power. I, I think that with China, it's not clear to me that there is a, at least self-evident, it's not clear to me that there's a self-evident end state. Um, what would an end state look like? So would, when I think of end states, I think of a dissolution of the Chinese Communist Party. I think of some, some serious collapse of, uh, of Chinese power or an indefinite period, of, an indefinite collapse of Chinese power. And, and I don't think that those Mm-hmm. end states. They are theoretically possible, but I think that they're highly unlikely, number one. And number two, it's it's not clear to me that the United States should should articulate or have its its as its goal vis-a-vis China the, the implosion of the Chinese Communist Party or the the, the mellowing out of Chinese power. Yeah. Uh, the reason that I prefer the term steady state as opposed to end state is that as you alluded to in your in your question, I think that thinking about steady states uh, it, it allows us to expand our imagination, it allows us to think of longer term, more durable equilibria. And, um, and I think that the relationship between the United States and China, it, it, it does lend itself more to, ste- to steady states. So the United States and China, while, while their relationship is increasingly competitive across a range of dimensions, uh, it's important for us not to forget that these are uh, two countries that, uh, despite the incipient momentum towards decoupling, these are two countries that have very significant uh, interdependencies uh, in the realms of economics, technology, uh, also if you look at student exchanges. So just as an example, China still accounts fully for about one third of all international students who are enrolled at American institutions of higher education. So there are significant interdependencies. Uh, China is not posing a frontal assault on the post-war order in the way that the Soviet Union did. China is more of a selective revisionist. And in fact, it's actually been one of the principal beneficiaries of integration into the post-war order. So when you think about when you think about China's extant level of integration into the post-war order, when you think about the number and depth of interdependencies between the United States and China, and when you think about the reality that as much as Washington and Beijing uh, might not like to acknowledge that reality, there really are few, if any, major challenges of world order on which we can make meaningful, sustainable progress without a baseline of U.S.-China cooperation. And that's why I, 
I, I think the depictions of zero-sum co competition or or discussions of, of end states in the U.S.-China relationship, they, they don't seem to me to quite map onto the reality of the challenge that we face. Yeah. So, Ali, that was a, that was a really thorough, I think, um, a breakdown of why that term is relevant. And I think, I think you know, listeners of this podcast will be aware that I, I agree with a lot of uh, what you've just said. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's there's really no way that a country of China's magnitude could experience the sort of economic growth that it did over the last two decades and not change the world and change American priorities, strategic priorities in Asia in a in a very big way. But, you know, just to just to play devil's advocate, I mean, um, or not really devil's advocate, but sort of to point out the nature of the changing discourse, I guess, in Washington today about about the nature of the U.S.-China relationship. I mean, first of all, we have a president in the White House who has obviously uh, got a very specific agenda with China that largely revolves around trade. You alluded to economic decoupling, and that's certainly something that we're seeing happen under this administration. But the but the other question, uh, this idea of you know coexistence versus something else, uh, you know, we can we can talk about what that something else might might include. I mean, you referred to a few things such as the collapse of the Communist. Party. On the most recent episode, episode of this podcast, we had a discussion about Hong Kong, and we talked a bit about the protests underway there and Chinese fears about so-called color revolutions and efforts by foreign actors to uh, begin, uh, you know, bring about the downfall of the party. And in many ways, I mean, you know, this is 2019 that we're having this conversation 40 years after the normalization of U.S.-China relations after the second communique in 1979 seven years after Nixon's first trip in 72. But before that, through the 50s, through the 60s, the American view towards Mao Zedong and China was that the Communist Party was likely an aberration, that, that this regime did not necessarily have to represent the future of the country. There were very serious discussions at the time about what what it meant about, you know, how long, quote, red China would actually stick around. And of course, now we know today that the Chinese Communist Party is really here to stay. But, you know, while you and I might agree that the prescription that makes the most sense or at least presents the least risks is working towards some kind of coexistence. I think we have to also contend with the more hawkish strains of thought that are now being aired quite openly. I mean, frankly, uh, talking again about, frankly, regime change in China. I mean, bringing about the end of the Communist Party and um, pointing out that the party is culpable for several very troubling um, developments in the country, right? We could talk about the fact that more than a million Uyghurs are in concentration camps in Xinjiang uh, in 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 terms that really, I think, I think, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to call that a form of cultural genocide. And and so I think the uh, the debate about China today is getting to a place where um, these issues are, are are beginning to weigh and the and the older sort of more optimistic assumptions that, uh, you know, China's development would lead eventually to political liberalization and opening up, I think, have really fallen flat, especially under Xi Jinping. Um, but I wanted to sort of, you know, bring bring the conversation back a bit and uh, and talk a bit about an article that you wrote that I read with great interest uh, that I think, uh, you know, we should talk a bit about on this on this discussion. Um, that was your recent uh, op-ed for the Financial Times. I'll add a link in the show notes for our listeners if they'd like to read it. It is, of course, paywalled, but um, hopefully hopefully people will be able to access it. Uh, but, you know, you make a very um, optimistic and sort of positivist push for the United States to focus on what it does well, you know, not to uh, try and out China China per se, but to focus on really what made the United States a, a preeminent power during the 20th century and the 21st. Uh, so do you want to just tell us a bit about, you know, what you were thinking in that op-ed and, and sort of the core arguments that you make in there? 
Sure. So the the immediate precipitant for for the op-ed was, of course, the the controversy over uh, the controversy that was provoked by then a director of the policy planning staff, Karen Skinner's remarks. I believe she made them in in a in a form in late April, uh, in which she in which she suggested that our uh, competition with China. She likened it to. She. I don't think she explicitly invoked Samuel Huntington's name, but she she uh, she discussed how it was akin to kind of a competition between civilizations. And so there was there was clearly a clearly paying homage to Samuel Huntington's uh, famous 1993 essay in Foreign Affairs, and then the book that he subsequently wrote, fleshing out his thesis. And so a number of art, and and then uh, a few. I think it was a few months after she. She articulated those remarks. Uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton uh, made a statement in which he seemed to double down on that conception of a kind of a civilizational competition or a clash between the United States and China. And so when you combined uh, Kieran Skinner's remarks with with those of John Bolton, they seem to suggest uh, to a number of observers in both Washington and in Beijing that the Trump administration was indeed thinking about U.S.-China competition not only in uh, not only in economic terms, but also perhaps more troublingly and more fundamentally in societal ones. And so I, uh, I thought it would be interesting to look at Sam Huntington's broader uh, body of work and to see if there were insights that we might glean uh, from his from his very vast body of scholarship that might map onto the U.S.-China relationship. Because the you know the prevailing narrative is you know, the and, and I, I still think the prevailing narrative is that that Samuel Huntington is a wrong. Is is the wrong individual uh, uh, to, for whom to turn to, uh, to whom we should turn for guidance and thinking about the relationship. But it just so happens that he he published an essay. So five years before the essay that he for which he probably is most uh, famously known regarding the clash of civilization, uh, he published another civilizations rather. He published an essay in Foreign Affairs uh, in 1988, and the title of which is "The U.S. Decline or Renewal?" question mark and I read the essay and I found it to be, uh, as I was reading it, even though you know, he wrote it almost you know, 30 years ago now, so it was in 1988, um, I found that it, at least from my perspective, that it has insights that are tremendously relevant. And so the, the, to, to make a, a long, uh, to make, he wrote a very lengthy essay, but just to summarize it. So in 1988, there were concerns, which Huntington discussed in this piece, that the United States was losing its economic competitiveness particularly vis-a-vis -vis Japan and the European Union. And so and so Samuel Huntington he basically says here we go again the United States is is once again fearful that it's in decline and and by his by his count this was the fifth cycle of declinism that the United States had experienced in the post-war era and he devotes the bulk of his essay to explaining why in his judgment the United States is not in decline so he looks at America's uh, sort of uh, America's score sheet when it comes to military power, to economic power, to diplomatic power. And so the bulk of his essay is is sort of a, a very methodical deconstruction of America's military, economic, diplomatic power. And he concludes pretty forcefully that in his judgment, the United States is not in decline. But for me, the most important part of his essay and the one that I tried to uh, to uh, to surface in this this piece of the Financial Times is his conclusion. So Huntington argues that while he believes that the United States is not in decline, he sees no reason not to push back particularly forcefully against declinist anxieties. Because he says that if you look at the history of declinism, and if you look at the history of American reinvention and renewal in the post-war era, his conclusion is, paradoxically, 
although I should say paradoxically, but on, on further reflection, it's actually not too surprising. He says that the group that has played the single most instrumental role in, in averting decline is the declinists, because the declinists, they preemptively sound the alarm and they compel, they mobilize the American public and they galvanize the policymaking apparatus to take steps to shore up America's economy at home and to renew its alliances abroad. And that is to say they strengthen, so basically the declinists, even though their anxieties might be analytically misguided, they basically end up, uh, they end up uh, compelling the United States to become more competitive. And so Huntington's basic sort of conclusion was, look, I don't think we're in decline. I believe that this fifth wave of decline anxiety, like its, its four predecessors, is analytically misguided. But to the extent that we harness this wave of anxiety as we have in the past, I see no reason to push back. And so he basically was saying that, that anxiety, if harnessed properly, could have a very beneficial effect on America's economic competitiveness at home and also at standing abroad. And so I, I think that that is exactly the way that we need to think about managing the China challenge or managing China's resurgence. And that is to say, I don't think that we, I don't think that we can afford to succumb to complacence because obviously China is a, is a serious competitor. It is perhaps, I think, arguably an unprecedented competitor, particularly if you look at its economic and technological Capability, So we can afford to be complacent. And we've seen in recent years that China has managed to defy one of the one of the core, I, I don't know if I would say orthodoxies of post-Cold War triumphalism, but certainly one of the core hopes, namely that as China, uh, as we brought China in from the cold and as China became more beholden to forces of globalization, that it would, if not become a Western style democracy, that it would at least take some incremental steps towards liberalization. We've seen in recent years, particularly under Xi Jinping, that China has defied that, that hope. So we can't be complacent. On the other hand, we shouldn't succumb to fatalism, which is the, the, equally, uh, the equally unproductive and unhelpful uh, extreme. Uh, and, I, and I fear when I, just judging by, you know, th this is a very anecdotal impression, but judging by some of the conversations I find myself having in Washington, judging by the tenor of some of the articles that I'm reading, some of the events that I'm attending, there, I, I do feel that there is a sense of resignation in some of the conversations that I see. Namely, there's this, there's this sense that, or there's this depiction of China as a this kind of inexorably resurgent juggernaut, proceeding from 100-year plans that is run by yeah. uh, almost these sort of peerless, uh, peerlessly strategic and foresighted technocrats. And, and I just think that, that that depiction is inaccurate. And not only that that depiction is inaccurate, but it also, it discounts, one, it discounts a number of very, very significant domestic and external liabilities that China confronts. But it also, it, it induces the United States to pursue a very uh, misguided direction. Because remember Huntington's counsel. Huntington's counsel was that the United States should harness its anxiety not to try to replicate the, the accomplishments or the pursuits of its competitors, but rather to invest anew in itself. That was his core injunction. And the United States is not China. It can't become China. Um, it would lose everything about itself it if it were to try to become China. And so I think that the United States needs to think about, one, 
what are China's what are China's liabilities at home and abroad, of which there are many, and two, what are its unique competitive strengths? So the the upshot of the op-ed was to say that if complacence isn't warranted, and I certainly don't think it is, then neither is fatalism. And I I think it's worth worthwhile, at least briefly, to enumerate some of China's uh, some of China's myriad liabilities. So yeah, let's talk a bit internal- about that. Yeah, go ahead. So. Internally, uh, internally, I think we're seeing, and, and I think the trade tensions with the United States have um, have have uh, made this point quite clear, that the China state-run model of growth, while it has propelled China quite remarkably for the past 35 to 40 years, that that model is, uh, it is not an inexhaustible engine of growth. And in fact, it's starting to show signs uh, on, on a number of fronts. There are a number of indicators and trends suggesting that its state-run model of economic growth is starting to run out of steam. So number one. Number two, uh, or, and so I should say related to that, I think that there's a recognition among, uh, a growing recognition among uh, respected Chinese economists and also among senior Chinese policymakers that they need to shift, they need to shift their, uh, their model or they need to make some pretty, they need to enact some pretty fundamental structural reforms. The problem is, one, Xi Jinping has actually, rather than embarking on reforms, he actually has doubled down on uh, state-owned enterprises. And of course, uh, the state-owned enterprises, which which occupy a, a, a an outsized role in the Chinese economy, they of course are going to be very resistant to to any to any uh, campaign of fundamental economic reform, which will be necessary for China to embark on its next phase of growth. So I would say liability one is a model that is running out of gas, but is nonetheless deeply entrenched. Number two, we really can't overstate the we can't overstate how bleak their demographic outlook is. And we've been talking about their we've been talking about uh, demographic headwinds for some time, but I think it's only now that that those headwinds are really beginning to make their impact felt. And I think that in the decades to come, if you look at whether it's a decline in China's working age population, whether it's the rapidly decreasing ratio between China's working age population and its elderly population, I think that China's demographic outlook is very bleak, and um, and it's only I think going to grow more grim. And as much as China is trying to backtrack on some of the damage that it has incurred as a result of its imposition of a one-child policy, I think that some of that damage could well be irreversible. So number two would be its demographic outlook. Number three, it's not a not a new tension or it's not a new challenge, but I think it's 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 an it's it remains a formidable challenge, and that is how do you how do you, on the one hand, uh, develop and grow a middle class and, and thereby present yourself to the rest of the world as a country that can continue to grow without becoming democratic, but basically keep that, uh, keep that burgeoning middle class uh, compliant and subordinate and quiet? And, it's, and I think that up until now, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, I think it's fair to say that China has done quite a remarkable job of, of preempting preempting dissent, preempting dissent and preventing sort of the, the, the mobilization of large-scale unrest. But how long can it sustain that, that tension, a tension that inheres in trying to maintain sort of a quasi-capitalist or quasi-market economy, uh, but also a one-party, one-party authoritarian rule? So there are a number of, and then of course, as we're seeing with, with the, the ongoing protests in Hong Kong, China still has not solved, for lack of a for lack of a more elegant word, China still has not solved the problems in Xinjiang, in Tibet, in Hong Kong, and I think if anything, its um, its brutal treatment of the Uyghurs, its 
it's really quite crude and appalling antics vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the protesters in Hong Kong. It's continued, uh, it's continued efforts to strip uh, Taiwan of diplomatic recognition around the world. I think that they are really starting to not only elicit greater scrutiny, but also elicit uh, greater consternation in the international community. Uh, and, and I think that there are more and more observers who are wondering if China's behavior towards uh, towards uh, Xinjiang or behavior in Xinjiang vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Taiwan, vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong, if those might be a portent of how it were to behave, how it might behave internationally if it were to gain greater power. So that's on the domestic side. What about liabilities on the external side? I think the first one obviously is geography. So China is bordered by 14 countries and I think only I think only Russia is uh, surrounded uh, by by that many countries. So Russia's or so China is bordered by 14 countries, some of which are politically very unstable and volatile, such as North Korea and Pakistan. Uh, but it's also surrounded by or bordered by very confident, uh, capable democracies. So whether we look at uh, India, Japan, South Korea, Australia, these are countries that are very capable economically, very capable militarily and technologically. And I think that China would be, uh, would be quite hubristic if it were to believe that it could simply uh, resume its historical position of regional preeminence and that these confident, capable democracies of border, it will simply sit idly by. So, so one external liability is a very, I, I think from a strategic perspective, a very unfavorable geography. Um, for all the talk about relative American decline, China nonetheless has to confront a very formidable uh, American naval presence in its, uh, in its uh, uh, immediate a periphery. Um, I think also externally, China, It yes, it has a growing number of transactional partners by virtue of its geoeconomic statecraft, but China doesn't have genuine allies. And there are a number of international relations scholars, still in the minority, but I think nonetheless persuasive, persuasive uh, and respected voices such as Yan Shui-Tong, who argue that until and unless China is able to establish a network of alliances comparable to that which the United States presently maintains, there will be an intrinsic limit to how how much it can narrow the gap in comprehensive national power with the United States. So, I mean, we could go on in this vein, but the the point is that while we should while we should certainly be uh, be impressed by China's multifaceted resurgence over the past four decades, and particularly since China's accession to the World Trade Organization, uh, it's it's a, the resurgence the likes of which uh, it, I, I think it's probably without historical precedent. We shouldn't discount the numerous liabilities it has at home and abroad. And so, what I what I'm trying to argue in the, the FT piece is that basically channeling Sam, Samuel Huntington's 1988 foreign affairs essay is that uh, we, need to, we, need to, we need to basically formulate an objective scorecard. China has significant strengths, and I think that the United States, perhaps in its post-Cold War triumphalism, underestimated the, the resilience of the Chinese Communist Party, underestimated China's ability to defy certain orthodoxies about development. Uh, but China has serious liabilities, some of which are growing in in uh, growing in severity. Uh, yeah. And the United States also it has very significant, uh, unique comparative advantages. Whether it's uh, its geography, its network of alliances, its ecosystem of innovation, its system of higher education, and and I'm quite confident, based on America's record of dealing. And and I should say one last point: America also it embodies an idea in the way that China doesn't. Um, you know, Lee Kuan Yew before he passed away. You know, he was asked, you know, do you think that China will eclipse the United States as the world's preeminent power? And Lee Kuan Yew was unambiguous in arguing that China had that ambition. But when asked if they would actually be able to succeed in fulfilling that ambition, he said there's a key difference between 
China and the United States. China can draw on the talents of 1.3 billion people. America can draw on the talents of the, the world's entire population. And one of the reasons it can do so is because it stands, for, it's, it stands for a far more inclusive and pluralistic idea. If you're born outside of China, no matter how fluently you speak Mandarin, no matter how much field work you have in China, no matter how many contacts you have in China, you will always be considered an other. If you're born outside of the United States, so if you take my parents, for example, who are immigrants to the United States, they, they left Pakistan when they were in their 20s, um, it, you're not othered in America. Um, you come to America and you can not only shape the American story, but you can become an authentically American part of the American story. That's a big difference. So that's, that's a very, very long-winded uh, answer to your question, but I, I think we need to, we need to strike. It, it's a long way of saying that we, in the United States, as we think about managing the resurgence of a very serious competitor, but also necessary collaborator in certain ways, I think that we need to strike a, a difficult but but necessary middle uh, middle ground between complacence and fatalism. All right. Well, Ali, unfortunately, we've run out of time. I know that there's a lot of um, everything that you just said. I think we could interrogate over several additional podcasts. Yeah. I think uh, I think you're absolutely right, though, that um, the the tendency to sort of inflate the challenge posed by China um, is is rather apparent in Washington today, and there's probably it's probably worth having a uh, a more detailed sort of conversation about the liabilities, the great liabilities that I think very much manifest in the ways that China does conduct itself internationally and domestically, as you noted. Um, you know, we don't have to look to Hong Kong; we can also look at how China behaves in navigating certain territorial disputes along its periphery, uh, which you sure. also alluded to, but. Um, I hope we can have you back on the show to uh, talk about uh, some of the other themes uh, that we raised. Um, but it would Ali, be an honor. Yeah, absolutely. And um, look, I, in the meantime, I just really want to uh, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. It really was an honor and a privilege and uh, hope to be back. Absolutely, Ali. Well, uh, we'll hope to have you back on soon. Thanks for joining me. Thanks very much. All right, for listeners, if you uh, liked what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. You can do that on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers out there. Just search for the Asia Geopolitics Podcast. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review on iTunes, please go do that. That really helps get the word out about the show. Before we end, just a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.